0: Let's open in prayer before we get started in session number four. Our great God and our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity that is ours to study your word and particularly study the life of your son Jesus. And we pray that as we begin tonight with the birth of Christ that you would teach us new things that help us walk more closely with you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen reminded uh, of a great cute Christmas joke of of an elementary school teacher named Mrs. Jones. She had a bunch of squirrely little boys in her class, and after the Christmas break, the first first, day after Christmas break, she brought them in and she said, well, I'd like to know what you did to celebrate Christmas Eve. Patrick, uh, you you have a good Irish Catholic family. What do you do on Christmas Eve? He said, well, we, we go to Mass, and my brothers and sisters, we all uh... have eat fish and we sing hymns and then we come home very late and we put out mincemeat pies by the door and we go to bed with our stockings hung excited for father christmas to show up and bless our home she said that's very good how about you jimmy you go to the episcopal church he said yes my family and i uh... we go to the uh, to the eucharist around midnight and and we eat a little bit and we come home after ha- ha- having sung some hymns we put out cookies and milk for for santa uh, we wait by the chimney and hang up our stockings there and hope for good things the next morning. But Miss Jones was a smart woman, and she also was a kind woman. She knew, she knew she had a little Jewish guy in her class, and so she said, Isaac, what do you guys do on Christmas Eve, being Jewish? And he said, well, it's the same thing every year. We wait for my dad to come home from the toy plant. We pile into his limo and drive to the factory and get inside and look at all the empty shelves. Then together as a family, we sing, what a friend we have in Jesus. He said, and then we go to, then we go to the Bahamas. <laughs> so I don't know what you do for Christmas, and I'm hoping that these early paragraphs in the life of Christ will help you celebrate the Lord's birth in a new way. The thing I want to get through tonight is Galatians 4.4. 4. I'd like you to read that with me. Galatians 4.4 4 says this, But when the fullness of the time came, again, but when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Last week in the first couple of sessions, we saw why the virgin birth was necessary in order to preserve the rights to the throne of David without being directly related to David through Joseph. Jesus was directly related to uh, David through his mother Mary. And so we get to Luke chapter 2. The familiar passage is the Christmas passage. It says, Now in those days a decree went out in paragraph chapter 10, Luke 2, and verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus to register all the empire for taxes. This was the first registration taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Everyone went to his own town to be registered. I want you to understand that this is in the fullness of time that this birth of Christ takes place. And not only did it take place at the right time, it took place into a world that was in great need. The world religiously uh, was really struggling religiously because of the mass exploitation of the Romans. They, they really subjugated a lot of people. And as a result, the Greek gods were either dead or dying. In the ancient world, the Greek gods were uh, on their descent at the time Christ was born. Intellectually, it had devolved into two schools of thought. You had the Stoics, who kind of stiff up her lip, you know, the life stinks and then you die group on one hand. And the Epicureans who basically said, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you may die. And that was the climate at the time of Jesus. The Greek gods were dead or dying. The Epicureans and the Stoics ruled the world philosophically. But the thing I want us to understand is God was not making any mistakes when Jesus was born. And the world was in great need of resuscitation. And it helps me to use acronyms to remember things. And you'll see this same acronym will help us twice tonight the world needed to know about jesus and so god had worked it out for the world to have resuscitation by way of cpr say cpr and cpr stands for cardiopulmonary resuscitation except at the birth of christ it stands for a common language the pox romana and the roman roads god prepared the way for the coming of jesus the world needed to know he was here and so at the time jesus was born we had what's called the lingua franca, or the common language. And that was what language? Greek. The New Testament is written in a language called Koine Greek. It was everyone's first or second language. It was very similar to America. You know, we're very spoiled in in, in America because we speak English, and wherever we go in the world, we expect everyone to speak English. And they do. But, you know, I had a grandfather who came from Spain, and he spoke five languages. In my grandmother's house, they only spoke Italian. And so it's very unusual from a world standard uh, to only speak one language. But in our world, almost everybody speaks English as a second or a third or a fourth language. That was the situation at the time Jesus was born. The message of the New Testament went out in Greek and everybody could understand it. And not only was the message understandable, but it was a time of peace. The Pax Romana stands for Roman peace. One of the few times in the history of the world when we had a 100 years from about 50 B.C. till about 50 A.D., where peace was the norm. And that was important because the message of Jesus could go out into the world without people having to worry about warfare and being killed. And so the idea of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus could spread throughout the world. And during those hundred years, it spread like wildfire. By the end of the New Testament, it was said of the disciples, they turned the world upside down. And they took the gospel, to the ends of the earth by using the Roman roads. The Romans were road builders. They were builders of all kinds. We saw that last week. We'll see it again tonight. But they needed to move their troops from one end of the empire to the other. And you can still today travel on Roman roads. We're going on the Journeys of Paul trip in in the fall, and we will actually walk on the Roman road that went right through the middle of Philippi. You know, it was cool. And, 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 And that allowed the gospel to spread throughout the civilized world. So when you get to Luke chapter 2 and it says in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus to register all the empire for taxes, this was the first registration taken where Quirinius was governor of Syria, everyone went to his own town to be registered. Now that in and of itself is kind of a miraculous thing because the Roman method of taxation was similar to ours. You know, we just came through the month of April and on April 15th, if you're a good loyal citizen, you pay your taxes but i don't have to go to my birthplace in pennsylvania to pay my taxes i just put them in an envelope and i send it off to the irs agency in atlanta is that what you do that was the roman method but the jews were of such concern to the romans that this is the only time we know of in their history but the romans allowed the jews to tax the jewish people according to their own methodology and in israel going back to the old testament All of the wealth went back to the original owners. All of the land went back to the original families every seven years. And so they taxed according to where you were born. And that's why Mary and Joseph are going to go and register in Bethlehem. It's important because of Micah 5.2. Anybody know what Micah 5.2 says? Bethlehem is the birthplace of the Messiah. And so when we get to the, the story of Christ, Mary and Joseph get the annunciation from the angel Gabriel all the way up in Nazareth and we've got to get them from Nazareth so that the fullness of time can come and God can send forth his son born of a woman, but he has to be born in Bethlehem. And there on our map we see here's where they were in Nazareth, and we're going to trace the journey of Mary and Joseph, probably coming down along the Jordan River Valley, and this is straight uphill just south of Jerusalem is the little town of, of Bethlehem. It would have taken them... Quite a ways to walk It's probably 95 to 100 miles depending on which roads they travel. She's 10 months pregnant. Don't know if they had a donkey or not. The Christmas cards indicate that they do, but we don't have any indication that she did anything other than walk these 95 miles at, at this great date in her pregnancy. But they're going to Bethlehem because, verse, tw- verse 4 says, Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David called what? Bethlehem because he was of the house and family line of David. We saw last week how important it was for Jesus to be born <clears throat> in the line of David. Matthew 1.1, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And so they had to get back to Bethlehem, which, were, which was the city where David was born. The Levites had kept the rolls, and the tax rolls were there since the time of Joshua. Verse 5 of Luke 2 says, Joseph, he went to be registered with Mary who was promised in marriage to him and who was expecting a child. And again, there are four stages to the Jewish wedding custom. The first we talked about last week was the the engagement itself, where the Jewish man would go with a bride price and a cup of wine to the home of his young Jewish bride-to-be. If she drinks the wine and says yes to the proposal, they are now betrothed. It is a legal binding agreement. Mary and Joseph were in this 12 to 24-month legally binding time but she's going to have this child. And so verse 6, it says, while they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in strips of cloth and laid him in a what? Manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now let me talk about three or four things in these couple of verses. First question is, when was Jesus born? (coughs) Answer, at a very early age. We don't know when Jesus was born. My guess is it was probably not December 25th, and we'll talk about that when we get to the next paragraph. But we know that Quirinius was governor of Syria twice in the Roman records. The first time he was governor of Syria was from 10 to 6 B.C. That's probably what we're dealing with here. And then he was governor of Syria after 11 A.D. And so if you start with the timeline I've got up here on the screen with 8 B.C., 7 B.C., 6 B.C., Herod leaves Jerusalem in 5 B.C. We know that, again, from the Roman records. And we know from the Roman records that Herod dies in 4 B.C. So Jesus had to be born before Christ. It wasn't his fault. When they picked the zero starting point for the calendar, they were totally wrong about that. Jesus is born somewhere, as best we can tell, between 6 and 4 B.C. And we're going to know later in this lesson tonight that Herod put put to death all the baby boys in and around Bethlehem from the age of two and under. So if Herod dies in 4 B.C., Jesus couldn't have been born much before 6 B.C., you with me? So we're on our way from Nazareth to Bethlehem, and she gives birth to this child. And the cool thing is she wraps him in strips. Now you remember the old King James word for this? It was called what? swaddling clothes what are swaddling clothes let me see you get your swaddle on swaddling clothes were long linen strips and the reality was and the irony was that they very closely resembled grave clothes when the women came to anoint the body of jesus on easter sunday having later found him to be raised from the dead they were coming to put swaddling cloths on him Now, it wasn't totally unusual for a child to be wrapped in strips of linen. But you would immediately, if you were in that world, say, ah, that looks like grave clothes. And I think from the very beginning, Jesus shows even at his birth that he came to do what? To die for us. The second thing that's interesting is they they didn't have room for him in the inn. The word inn in the Greek is the word kataluma. And most of the time, it's not translated as a holiday inn it's translated as a guest room and my, my best guess is, and I could be wrong and I've been wrong one other time today, is that Mary and Joseph are going to come from Nazareth down to Bethlehem and they clearly have family there, that's where their roots are and so my guess is someone is putting them up in the guest room and the guest room was equipped, like a lot of guest rooms at the time, to deal with the livestock and so Jesus shows up and he's put in a manger a manger could be a stone shelf. It could be a wooden basket. It's anywhere where the cattle or the sheep would be fed, and Bethlehem is covered over with sheep. Okay? So it was likely that Jesus is put into some feeding mechanism that was in a guest room to a family member's house. Now, you can go to Bethlehem and see the shepherd's caves, and it's all cool, and maybe that's where it happened. We don't know. And maybe it was in an inn. They did have inns at the time of Jesus. They were Uh, square in shape with an open one side and three closed sides. They were two stories tall. And the people that were on the road and had money would pay to stay on the second floor. And then their animals, which you always took with you, would stay on the first floor. And there was a gate that closed the front of the inn. That was for protection from thieves along the way. And it might have been that. I'm just telling you what are the options. But Jesus is born. He's put in a manger. And then that part of your harmony, which we've changed, We want to see the continuation of the story after Jesus is born. And the continuation of the story takes place in paragraph 11. Now there were shepherds living out in the field, keeping guard over their flock at night. Now, let me talk about that for just a minute. First of all, why are there shepherds in Bethlehem? Well, what do they do? They raise sheep. Why are sheep in Bethlehem? Because it's outside of Jerusalem. It's a suburb. Bethlehem is closer to Jerusalem than than this church building is to downtown Lakeland. Everybody every year in Jerusalem had to offer sheep as sacrifices. At the very least, you had to go to Jerusalem. You were required, if you could get there, to offer a Passover lamb. That kind of is the good news, bad news. The shepherds had a steady source of income for their sheep. But the sheep had a steady source of outgo. In addition to wool, sheep produce what? Sheep dip. That's what they call it in Mulberry, right? (laughs) And sheep dip, if you step in it, makes you unclean. And I think there's great irony here that God is going to announce the birth of his son to those shepherds who were not able to even celebrate the feasts that their sheep would have been offered for. You know, to get clean ceremonially took you a week, and most shepherds wouldn't have the ability to do that. They're keeping watch over their flock at night. It, it, it probably means that the birth of Jesus occurred in one of two time frames. Sheep are kind of funny because God calls us his sheep. Jesus is our good shepherd. Sheep are miserable, miserable creatures. <laughs> they make sheep dip. They're, they're gross, they're dirty, and they're really stupid. You know, sounds like me. But the thing about sheep is... Um, that they have to have help birthing the lambs. Most animals don't need help. But twice a year, sheep have baby sheep. One time is in March, one time is in October. In the spring and in the fall is, is the time for the birthing of lambs. The predominant number of sheep would be the springtime because those survive more readily because they're into the summer months as opposed to being born in October and having to survive the winter months where there's no rain, no water at all. Okay? We're not sure which it was that it was their case, but they were keeping watch in order to help these shepherds birth their sheep. Might have been the fall, might have been the spring, but I'm pretty certain it was not on december twenty fifth. I don't want to ruin your Christmas. I just want you to be biblical. Next verse. Luke two, verse nine. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were what? Ah, absolutely terrified. The old King James, so afraid. They were so afraid it hurt. And again, remember last week when Mary and Joseph and Zechariah saw the angel, they went ah! And that's what happened to these four shepherds. Also, the glory is important. The glory in Hebrew is the word Shekinah glory. It's the word used in John one hundred fourteen. It says, And the word became flesh and shekined among us. The presence of God is manifested by light. He is light, and in him there is no darkness. This is the first time the glory of God has appeared in Israel in five hundred years. You might want to reference Ezekiel chapter ten and verse eighteen, when the glory departed. You know, some of you know my son Johnny. Johnny Diaz. He sings real nice. But when Johnny was little, his family name was Ichabod. And Ichabod is Hebrew for the glory has departed. We call him that kind of as a joke, and it stuck. So the glory shows up, and the angel shows up, and they're afraid, But, but... I love the word but. But's a great word in the Bible. But the angel said to them three things. Do not be afraid. Listen carefully, for I proclaim to you the good news that brings great joy to all the people. Second, today your Savior is born in the city of David. Third, he is Christ the Lord. So don't be afraid. Your Savior is born. He's the Christ, and the word Christ is is the Messiah. Now, verse 12, this will be a sign for you. You're going to get two clues. You'll find the baby wrapped in clothes that swaddle and also lying in a manger you may find other children wrapped in linen cloths, but you probably in Bethlehem won't find one wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And again, I just think it's great irony here and the way God seems to work most of the time is contrary to the way I would get things done. If I were God and I were going to show up on the planet, you know, I'd want Barbara Walter's last great interview. I'd want three or four networks there. I'd want the celebrity red carpet treatment and, and God shows up in a manger in Bethlehem, and he announces it to unclean shepherds. That's just how God tends to do things in my life. Verse 13, Suddenly a vast heavenly army appeared with the angel, praising God and singing. doesn't say that, does it? Do you know that as far as I can tell in the Bible, angels don't sing? Is that going to ruin anybody's time in heaven? Now they may, but here it says they're saying, and what are they saying? Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among people with whom He is pleased. I'm thinking they're singing. Maybe they're singing. I don't know. Verse 15 When the angels left them and went back to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has taken place that the Lord has made known to us. So they hurried off and located Mary and Joseph and found the baby lying in a manger. When they saw him, they related what they had been told about this child and all who heard it were astonished at what the shepherds said. I believe this, that from the time Jesus was born, the word is out there. The shepherds are the first evangelists and they're just a few miles outside of Jerusalem. And I think by the time the wise men show up in the next paragraph, everybody kind of had an idea that the Messiah was here. And Mary, in the meantime, does a wonderful thing. It says she treasured up all these words, pondering in her heart what they might mean. We do know later, as best we can tell, that Mary gave all this information to Luke, who records it here in chapter 2 for us. So there you have the birth of Christ. Now, again, the passage we started with was Galatians 4:4, which says on, that in the fullness of the time... God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So we've got him born of a woman by the end of Luke 2. Now we have to get him born under the law. And there's a great acrostic that will help you remember the three ceremonies that every Jewish baby had to undergo. And guess what the acrostic is? C-P-R. CPR is not only needed for the resuscitation of the world, it is needed To obey the law anytime you have a baby under the Jewish law. The C is for circumcision, the P is for purification, and the R is for redemption. And so we have some early details in the life of this baby beginning in paragraph 12. First of all, he's circumcised. Paragraph 12, Luke 2, verse 21 At the end of eight days, he was circumcised. He was named Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So there Joseph takes over, fulfills his role as the father, adopts him and gives him a name, not his own. Joseph here is doing the naming and the baby is circumcised. I I don't know this for certain, but I'm told that the eighth day is the highest day where the vitamin that helps you heal is the highest in your life. I think it's vitamin K, do I remember that? Wow. I was way back there in the recesses of that cobweb-filled mind, but this is the first law that Jesus obeyed. There are 613 Old Testament laws. Did you know? I men- mentioned it last week in passing. Jesus never broke one of them. He is circumcised. What is circumcision? Circumcision is a step of faith by the parents that say, if we don't experience the promises of God to Abraham in our lives, we by faith are claiming that our child might experience those promises I don't think it has anything to do with the child the child would probably vote no but the parents are saying we're going to be obedient to the promises of God if we don't experience them. we want our son to do next paragraph 13 we have the purification law purification law comes from Leviticus 12 I'm sure you've memorized this but I have it on the PowerPoint for you should I've quote it for you from memory Leviticus 12 says on the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then uh, in verse 3, it says, when a, uh, verse, verse 2 actually on the, on the screen is below verse 2, verse 3. When a woman gives birth and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean for seven days as in the days of her menstruation. So if you were with a woman and she had a baby and you were with her when it happened, she was unclean and you were unclean. And so Mary has to go and offer the sacrifices for purification. She has to be pronounced clean under the Jewish law. Now, here's uh, how that happens. It says, if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two young pigeons, one for a burnt offering, the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her and she will be clean. Now, Look at paragraph 13. This is what's going on here with paragraph 13. It says in verse 22 of Luke 2, Now when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, just as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male will be set apart to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is specified in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now, what does this tell you about the financial status of Mary and Joseph? What did they offer? The least financially available sacrifice they could afford. They had no money. He's probably lost his job. They're staying with in-laws, for heaven's sakes. And so they go for the purification ceremony. And again, I think there's there's a verse in Isaiah chapter 11. You may check it out later, verse 1, that says, "...a shoot will sprout..." from the stump of Jesse. And King David is our guy, but by the time of Jesus, 900 years after David lives, the kingdom of David is just a stump. But out of that stump, there's a very important shoot, and it's the shoot called Jesus. So they purify Mary according to the Jewish law, and at that time, there's two people involved that bless them. Verse 25, there was a man in Jerusalem named what? Simeon, say Simeon, who was righteous and devout. What does it not say that he is? Old. It never says that Simeon's old. He may have been old. He may have been older than me, but it doesn't say he's old. But when you watch the movies about Jesus, he's always really old. But he was righteous, and he was looking for the restoration of Israel. He was a part of the remnant waiting for Messiah. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Remember, we said last week in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon you for a specific job and then he would leave not like that in the New Testament the Holy Spirit lives inside of us now but in the Old Testament Simeon had the Holy Spirit come upon him verse 26 it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ so Simeon directed by the Spirit came into the temple courts and when the parents brought in Jesus to do for him what was customary according to the law Simeon took him in his arms and blessed God saying now According to your word, Sovereign Lord, permit your servant to depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Now, Simeon was a Jew, and Simeon's a Jewish name, and if he was speaking Jewish, I think it's pretty cool here. He's saying, my eyes have seen your Yeshua. My eyes have seen your Jesus. Verse 31, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Don't miss that. And a glory to your people Israel. Remember, the shepherds got the news Good news of great joy to all people. And here, the Gentile, we get in on the blessing of the coming of Christ. Isn't that good? It's so good from the very beginning. Verse 23, so the child's father and mother were amazed at what was said about him. then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother, Mary, listen carefully. This child is destined to be the cause of falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be rejected. How'd you like to hear that about your newborn? You know, in Israel, people are going to rise or fall based upon what they do with Jesus. And that's been the case ever since he's come. Indeed, as a result of him, the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul as well. And I think that takes place at the crucifixion. You know, 30-plus years later, Mary is at the, at the scene of the crucifixion and she watches in heartbreak as Jesus is put to death. Now, there's another blessing here in verse 36. There's a woman blessing, verse 36. 36 of Acts 2, there was a prophetess named Anna. She was the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. Put a circle around that. She was very old. Now, she was old. She was well stricken in years. Having been married to her husband for seven years until his death, she had lived as a widow since then for 84 years. She never left the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And at that moment she came up to them and began to give thanks to God and to speak about the child to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. One thing that I noticed is she had her tribe. She was not from a tribe that was lost. At the end of the Old Testament, the ten northern tribes of Israel were scattered. They're called the ten lost tribes. There are people who make these great theories about what happened to them. Well, parts of them got back to Jerusalem. And parts of them were waiting for the coming of the Messiah. I think that's pretty cool. Parts of the Jewish remnant are looking for the fulfillment of Abraham's covenant. And she's one of these ladies. So we have the circumcision for C, and we have the purification for P. Even though she's very poor, Mary can afford the most menial circumcision, two young pigeons, one for a burn offering, the other for a sin offering. And what's left in our acrostic are. What's noticeably missing from Luke chapter 2, the redemption? Do you understand that, and I I tweeted this this week, this is the one of the 613 commandments that Jesus obeyed without keeping it. What is this about? Well, it's it's a pretty cool story. Back in the Old Testament, go all the way back to Exodus, okay, and the Jews were slaves in Egypt, right? And in order to get the Jews out of Egypt, God had to send the ten plagues. you remember the plagues? What was the last and most severe plague? Good, the Passover. Say Passover. And what happened at the Passover was the angel of death came into Egypt and he killed every firstborn from every child. Every firstborn animal was killed. Now, God was saying, hey, I have the rights to own the firstborn. And then the Jews come out of Egypt after the Passover. And in Exodus 13, God says, Sanctify to me every firstborn, the first offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel, both of man and beast. It belongs to me. Okay, so God owns the firstborn. Now, when they came out of Egypt, they were divided into their tribes the tribe of Asher, the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of Judah. Then there was one tribe called the Levites. You remember the Levites? And God said, here's what we're going to do. Let's take, a, let's take a census. And so he numbered the people. Have you ever read the book of Numbers? It's called Numbers because they numbered the people. Oh. See, I'm not a rocket science scientist. Numbers 3, again, the Lord spoke to Moses. says, now behold, I have taken the Levites from among the sons of Israel instead of every firstborn. So here's the deal. I own the firstborn but instead of making every firstborn child go into priesthood, I'm just going to take a tribe, the Levitical tribe, and I'm going to make them priests. You with me? How are we going to make that work? Well, let's first count everybody up. So they did. This works out pretty cool. Number the sons of Levi by their father's household. Numbers 3.15. And there were 22,273 Levites. All the numbered men of the Levites were 22,000. So there are 22,273 men in Israel. There are 22,000 Levites in Israel. And so God said, here's what we're going to do. 22,273 less 22,000 is 273. For the ransom of the 273, numbers 3, verses 46 and 7, of the firstborn of the sons of Israel who are in excess beyond the Levites, you shall take five shekels apiece per head. So if you had a baby boy and you had him named and you had him circumcised and you went through purification, the next thing you did was you went in and you paid the five shekels for redemption from the priesthood. And then if you were from the tribe of Judah, like Joseph and Mary were, your son didn't have to go become a a priest. Now where does it say Jesus does that? He never does that. Jesus is never redeemed from the priesthood, and I think that's so cool. Because when Jesus comes, he comes to be our priest. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, there's a whole bunch of chapters about it, and it culminates with the phrase, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus was not an Old Testament Levite, but he's from a priesthood that has no beginning and no end. And that gives him the right to go before God and offer the perfect sacrifice for you and me, his own life. And the whole book of Hebrews is about that. So I just love this. Jesus doesn't violate the redemption code because he's never redeemed from the priesthood. This was such a big deal that if you did not have your father around to do it, you had to grow up and do it yourself. Okay. So Joseph and Mary don't pay this uh, five-shekel fee, as best we can tell. But Jesus, nevertheless, is going to be a priest, not a Levitical priest, but a Melchizedekian priest. Does that make some sense? Now we'll do just one more event. The wise men. Take a deep breath. Look to the person next to you and say, hang on, we're going to get to the wise men. You don't want to miss the wise men. Paragraph 14. Back to Matthew's account. Chapter 2. We read this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea in the time of King Herod, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is the one who is born king of the Jews, for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, people get all fired up about this, but the cool thing is that they showed up. They're from the east. The the word here is magi, and it's a Persian word. So we can safely assume these are guys from Persia. Persia is nowhere near Israel. It's over a 1,000 miles away. How would the Persians know to look for the star of the Jewish king? Well, I don't know. But i got a couple of options. Daniel 9 mentions that the Messiah would come in Israel and he gives us the date Jesus will show up in Israel. Also, the prophet Balaam in Numbers 24 talks about the star which will rise in Judah. Maybe they had the scriptures because Daniel went to Persia and left behind a great ministry. Regardless of that, God sends a supernatural sign and the star shows up And they followed it to Bethlehem. By the way, people ask me all the time, well, do you take the Bible literally? Well, sometimes, if it's meant to be, I do, but I take the Bible normally. (laughs) You know, the normal translation is always the the, the answer to this question. What did the original writer want for his reader to understand? If a literal star came over Bethlehem, where the child's going to be in a minute, it would burn up the planet. So my guess is this is some manifestation of light. Maybe the Shekinah glory. Maybe some uh, ast- ast- what's the word astronomical sign. I don't know. There are th- some interesting theories out there. But verse 3 of Matthew 2 says, When Herod heard this, he was alarmed and all Jerusalem with him. Two years have passed since the birth of Jesus. And the shepherds are doing their job. The king is here. Christ the Lord is here. Don't miss this. After assembling the chief priests and experts in the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born, in Bethlehem of Judea, for they said it is written by the way of the prophet. And this is Micah 5, 2. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are in no way least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod privately summoned the wise men and determined from them when the star appeared sent them to Bethlehem and said, go look carefully for the child. When you find him, inform me that I can go and worship him as well. We know Herod didn't want to do that, did he? After listening to the king, they left, and once again the star, not a literal star, they saw when it rose, led them until it stopped above the place where the child was. And the child is not the word for baby. It's the word for child. Okay? Okay. When they saw the star, they shouted joyfully. As they came into the house and saw the child with Mary, and they came into what? Wait a minute, I thought he was in a manger. No, Jesus is now living in a house in Bethlehem. He's a toddler. Think about that. Jesus was into the terrible twos by now. I don't want to ruin your nativity scene. I just want you to be biblical. (laughs) How many wise men does it say there were? Doesn't say, does it? Might have been three, might have been thirty-three. Oh, no, what am I going to do? I spent all that money on the nativity. Here's what we do. We got an extra set of wise men. So we put all six of them across the room on the television. And when people say, who is that? Well, those are the wise men. Why are they way over there? Because it took them a while to get to the baby. Really? Yeah, he was two. Why are there six? Because we don't know how many there were. We know there was more than one. They came into the house, verse 11. They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and bowed down, and they worshipped him. They gave him three gifts. I've had little old ladies grab me by the collar. It says we three kings. No, they gave him three gifts. They opened their treasures, their treasure boxes, and gave him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, and after being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they went back by another route to their own country. This is the first Gentile worship of the king. Simeon and Anna were Jews, and they blessed him but here we have Gentiles from the east giving him gold, which you would give to a king. Frankincense, which you would burn before a god. And myrrh was a burial spice. So although the song may not be right about the number of wise men, Jesus was indeed the king, the god, and the sacrifice that we worship. And then the wise men leave another way because they're warned by a dream, but the question we'll close this session with is this. What makes a wise man? Well, I think in the, in the text there's some really interesting observations to be made. First, the wise men were men who seek God. What do you seek? You know, we live in a world that says seek money, seek pleasure, seek personal peace, seek materialism. If you want to be wise, you've got to seek God. Herod, on the other hand, avoided God. And he could have gone with them to Bethlehem, but he, he sent them. He didn't want to go. Second, a wise man is a person who obeys the Scripture. The Scriptures were brought out Micah 5, two. Look it up. It says, you, Bethlehem, are the birthplace of the king. And the wise men, don't know if they had camels, but if they did, they hopped on their camels and humped down to Bethlehem. I bet it was a hump day. Hump day! Herod, on the other hand, had the same Bible. He was part Jewish. He knew... What the prophets said, the chief priests and the Bible teachers in Israel knew Ma- Micah 5 two. they avoided the scripture. They rejected the scripture. And lastly, the wise men worshipped through their giving. They gave him the right gifts. And God says, hey, you want to be wise? Worship. And make sure part of your worship involves giving. They gave him the best they had. Herod, on the other hand, sinned and ultimately murdered the two-year-old boys in the area. So as we close, I'd ask that question. How are you doing with this? Are you becoming a wise man or a wise woman? Are you seeking out God on a regular basis? Are you in the scripture learning what it teaches and then obeying it? And lastly, are you worshiping through your giving? Father, we thank you for these men who came so far. They were kings who did travel afar, bearing gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. We pray that we would be people who are wise people before you,